We're going through the book of Romans in this series called A Great God, Amazing Salvation. Now, one thing we're looking for in this series is clarity. We want to be crystal clear about the heart of Christianity. What is the gospel and what makes it such good news? Well, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says the gospel is not some lame, weak, impotent message. Rather, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That means if we understand the gospel clearly, it's going to bring us to utter worship of the great God whose power accomplishes this amazing salvation for us. Well, at the start of the book of Romans, in the first three chapters, Paul gives us clarity about the situation we are in. And that is, everyone is under the power of sin. We're all sinners. We're all rebels who deserve to die when God's judgment comes. And we have no way to change that. We have no way to save ourselves. But towards the end of chapter 3, Paul says, But now God has made a way to save us. And it's not through religion, it's not through good works, it's not through some rehab program, but it's through Jesus Christ. Because there's no more hope to be found in us, it's in Him. You're saved by faith alone in Him. But why is it by faith alone? That's what Paul explains to us in this next chapter, chapter 4. Let me read that to you. It says there, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Then down there in verse 13, it says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our 
justification. Now, Paul is saying in this passage that we are justified by faith alone. Now, don't be too intimidated by that word justified. It's just a word that means that when God's judgment comes, you're going to be declared just. You're going to be declared righteous and not guilty. So to be justified means you'll be, you'll be saved from the penalty of your sins. And Paul says the only way that can happen, the only way to be justified is by faith alone. That last phrase, faith alone, sola fide, that was one of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th and 17th century. When people started to understand clearly this aspect of the gospel, it sparked a spiritual reawakening of the life of the church. And if you get this clearly today, the Lord may also renew your spiritual life as well. So today, let's try our best to be clear how and why we are justified by faith alone. So today, let's ask three questions here. We are justified by faith alone. Why is it that way? So what? And lastly, how? Why? So what? And how? First of all, why are we justified by faith alone? Because if you look at every other religion in the world, all of them virtually comes and essentially tells you, here's what you need to do. This is the way to find salvation. You have to do this and do this and do this, then you'll find salvation. Every religion works like that. So for instance, Islam says, here's the five pillars, go do it. Buddhism says, here's the four noble truths, here's the eightfold path to enlightenment, go do it. So it's about doing the way. Every religion works on that system. It's about what you do to find and earn that salvation. You have to do this way, do these steps, do these commands, then salvation. So it's a system based on works, on your works. But the gospel, Paul says, isn't like that. The gospel is unlike any religion in the world because the gospel says you're not justified by works, you're justified by faith. See, Paul says, you're not justified by works. No amount of good works can justify you. It doesn't justify you one bit. Now, Paul's not saying good works is unimportant. In fact, he's, he'll be the first one to tell you that good works are very, very important. But this can't be the basis of your salvation. You cannot rely on this to save you from your sins. It doesn't work that way. Rather, you're only justified by faith alone in God. Now, why is that? Why is it by faith alone? Why not both? Why does the gospel insist that you're justified by faith alone apart from any good works? Well, here's why. Paul actually brings up a case study here. He brings up Abraham. Now, if there was anyone who is rich in good works, someone who's obedient to God, then it's Abraham. He's the role model. And that's why the Jews looked at Abraham and they said, you know, here's a man considered righteous by God. That's because he obeyed. That's because he was rich in good works. That's why he's righteous and justified. 
But Paul brings up Abraham as a case study, and he actually flips it around. And he quotes Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the context of that passage, if you look at it in your Bibles, is that God came to Abraham to reaffirm his promise that Abraham was going to have a son. And in fact, he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And even though Abraham was old, his wife Sarah was barren, Abraham, it says, believed God. And it was credited as righteousness. So at that point, right there, Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight. Did Abraham do any good works here? Did Abraham obey God in any way here? No, all he did was trust in God and in his promise. And right then and there, he was credited to him as righteousness. Now that word credited, that's a crucial word because Paul would repeat that again and again in chapter 4. Now what does that word mean? Well, in a financial or commercial context, to credit someone means someone puts something into your account, right? So for example, if someone puts 50,000 pesos into your account, then that 50,000 pesos is now credited to you. It's now yours to spend. You own it, right? Well, when is it that we get credit? How do we receive credit? Well, there's just basically two ways. Either one, you work for it, and therefore someone has to give you a compensation, they credit that compensation to you, or the other way is you didn't work for it. You didn't earn it, someone just gives it to you freely. It's a gift. So you get credit, either you earn it or you receive it for free. Either it's a compensation or it's a gift, right? Now, suppose you work for this businessman and you work eight to nine hours a day for six days a week. When payroll comes, your boss comes to you and he says, thanks for your great work, man. Uh, you did a good job, but I have this great idea. What if instead of your salary, I give you this box of donuts, it's my favorite, enjoy. Now, what would you feel? understandably, you'd be upset, right? Why? Because you worked hard for your salary. It's for your compensation. You earned that. Your boss is not free to change that. Your boss is not free to, to withhold that from you. You earned it, right? That's how your relationship with your boss works. You work, he pays, right? But it's not the same with your uh, father. Say you obeyed your father, six days a week, eight to 10 hours a day, you obeyed him. And when your birthday comes, you come, you go to him and you say, Father, throughout this year, I worked hard to obey you. And so if you just compute it by the minimum wage, I expect a compensation that's proportional to my obedience. So this birthday, I want you to give me a new MacBook Pro. Now, is your father obligated to give you a new MacBook Pro? No, of course not, because that's not how your relationship with your father works. He's not your boss, he's your father. You owe him your obedience simply because he's your father. You don't earn anything by obeying him, right? And therefore, 
The only reason your father would ever give you anything for your birthday, the only reason is not because he owes you, but only because he loves you. He gives you something not because he needs to give you something, but because he wants to give you something. And that's why Paul says here in verse 4 and 5, what does he say? He says, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, if you're trying to be justified by your works, then essentially you're trying to treat God like you're an employer and he's the boss. That if you're thinking that if I do enough good works, then God, when payroll comes, God has an obligation to give me my compensation for what I earned through my good works. You're saying, Lord, I worked hard to obey you this life. So when God's judgment comes, when you come, Lord, I, I expect you to compensate my good works accordingly and give me salvation and blessings. You're treating it as if God has an obligation, but that's not how your relationship with God works. It's more like a child and his father. You owe God your obedience simply because he's God. He's not obligated in any way to pay you for your obedience. No, you don't earn anything by your good works. Nothing. God's not under any compulsion or any obligation to give you anything. And therefore, the only reason God would ever give you anything, the only reason God would ever justify you, is not because he owes you, but because he loves you. Not because he needs to, but because he wants to. He gives it freely. It's by grace you're justified by grace alone. That's why, if you look again, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, Abraham believed God. It's faith. But, Faith is not what makes him righteous. It's not as if, if I have enough faith, then I'll be considered righteous. No, no, no. Faith is not another kind of good work that if you do enough faith, you'll earn your righteousness. No, it's not like that. It's a gift. Let's think about it like this. Suppose you stole a billion pesos from your father and you squandered it away. You ran out of the country to escape being imprisoned for your crimes. But then your father vibers you and he sends you a message and he says, uh, it's okay, son. It's okay. I won't, I'm going to forgive you for this. I'm willing to shoulder that whole thing, that whole billion pesos. Don't worry about it. I'll shoulder that. I won't send you to prison for this. Just come back home. There are no policemen waiting at the airport. Just come back home and be reunited with me. And so after some thought, you decided to trust your father. And you went back home, and everything happened just as he promised. You're home. Now here's my question. Did you repay anything back to your father? Did you pay even a single centavo back to the billion pesos that you stole? No. Did your trust pay back anything? Absolutely nothing. And in the same way, putting our faith in God repays nothing of the billion sins we've done against Him. Nothing. It doesn't give even a single centavo back. 
But what God does is he sees your faith and he credits into you a billion righteousness as a gift. It's a gift. It's by grace. You're justified by grace alone, by faith alone in him. And see, you didn't earn that righteousness. He doesn't owe you that righteousness. He gives it because he loves you and because he wants to save you. Do you understand this? It's absolutely crucial that we become crystal clear about the gospel. Let me give you a simple chart to compare this so that it becomes even clearer for us, right? There's basically two ways that we try to find salvation. Either it's by works or by faith, and both are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. It's either one or the other, and here's why. At the very start, you have to answer the question, well, what is God's relationship to us? What, how does he relate to us? It's either God owes us something or God owes us nothing. Now, if God owes us something, he's like a boss and we're like an employer, right? If we do something, then we earn something and God has to give us something. But Paul says, no, no, no. God is the sovereign creator. He owes us nothing, especially to sinful creatures like us. He owes us absolutely nothing, Paul says. And see, this is crucial to differentiate because this answers, secondly, how then can we find salvation? Now, if God owes us something, then salvation is earned. That is, if I do this, if I do this, if I do enough, then I earn something and God owes me a salvation. He's supposed to save me if I'm do good enough, right? But if God owes us nothing, then that means salvation can only come by grace. It has to be a gift. Because if God is sovereign and he owes us nothing, then the fixed point of our relationship with him is grace. It's always grace. It's always about what God would give us freely, not under any compulsion or obligation. He just wants to give it freely to us. That's the fixed point. And therefore, even our salvation, our forgiveness, our justification, it has to be a gift from God given freely, right? We can't earn this. It's a gift. And therefore, thirdly, this answers, well, where should we focus? Where should we rely on to get our salvation? Now, if salvation is earned, then you have to rely on God's laws. You have to look at God's laws and because that's your job description, so to speak. The more you fulfill your job description, the more you check off those boxes, the more you earn your salvation. But if salvation is a gift, then you have to rely on God's promise. You have to rely on what God says He's going to give you freely. You have to rely on what God promises for you. See, that's a, a, a wide difference because in the law, it says you shall do this, do this, do this. But in the promise, God says, I shall do this and this for you. It's very, very different. And see, in the end, how then do you find justification? Well, 
If you earn justification by doing God's laws, then you're justified by works. It's about what you do. It's about what I do. If I do enough good things, if I follow enough commands, then I'll be saved. But if salvation is by grace and it's dependent on the promise, then you're justified by faith. It's all about trusting God and trusting that He will accomplish and fulfill what He promised to do for you. It's about trusting that you're going to be saved because God said so. And therefore, ultimately, what does this all lead to? At the very end, it's either wrath or blessing. See, down there in verse 14, if you check it, Paul says, if you think you're justified by works, then faith and promise mean nothing. Why? Because verse 15, the law brings wrath. In other words, if you think that you can earn salvation by following the law, then we're all gonna end up with wrath. Why? Because our fundamental problem is that we cannot obey the law. So even if, even if you can find justification by works and by obeying the law, fundamentally, we can't. We're gonna end up with wrath and therefore, faith, it means nothing. Promise, it, it means nothing because you're going to end with wrath. But if it's God's promise, then we have a guaranteed blessing. Because it's no longer about me and my ability or my failures. It's about God being able to accomplish what He promised to give us. And therefore, it's blessing. He will save us. He will bless us. He will justify us. And all I have to do is trust that He will do what He promised. That's why Paul says in verse 16, he says, Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all who have the faith of Abraham. That is what the gospel says. God justifies you by faith alone, by grace alone. Do you understand that? Once we understand that, now we begin to understand how this impacts the way we live life. So what if we're justified by faith alone? What's the implications to our attitudes, to our behaviors, to the way we do life? Well, Paul identifies one key implication of this doctrine, and it's in the word boasting that he keeps on repeating all throughout the first chapters of Romans. Now, we all understand what boasting means. We don't like boastful people, right? But there's something more to that. Think about it like this. In ancient times, in Paul's time, you know, soldiers, right before they engage in battle, they would do what we call a ritual boast. You've probably, see, you've probably seen this in movies. It's, it's the scene right before the final great battle, and the soldiers are all lined up, and the king or one of the generals comes and gives them this inspiring speech, right? Now, in ancient times, they would say something like, by tonight, 
your enemy's heads will be chopped off and it will be in a platter drowning in blood, right? That's what they would say. And, they, and the soldiers would respond with something like, oh, oh, or something like that, right? Now, the whole idea behind that ritual boast was to hype up the soldiers. To, they're cheering for themselves. They're boosting themselves up so that, when, so that they're prepared to engage in battle with more courage, with more confidence, with more ferocity, right? With more strength. That's what they're doing. Now, what's interesting is the Bible actually warns us against that kind of boasting. The Bible says we're all doing the same thing in our life. We're all doing some kind of ritual boast so that we can face the battles of this life feeling strong and safe. So we look at something about ourselves and we use that to boost up ourselves and prepare ourselves to face the battles of life. So maybe we look at our wealth, or maybe we look at our accomplishments, or maybe we look at our talents, whatever that may be. We, we look at those things and we say, ah, that's why I can be confident. That's why I'm strong enough. I'm capable. I'm good enough for this. I can overcome because I have these things. Now, if you just look around social media or around our, our, our stores, you'll see that a lot of uh, self-help books or motivational speakers or popular psychology, they tell you to do the same thing, right? It's, it's, it's positive self-talk, they say, to boost yourself up. But actually, what's interesting is the Bible actually warns us against that kind of self-hype, right? And one popular passage that tells this is Jeremiah 9.23, and you may be familiar with this. It says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. See, and the Bible is full of those kinds of warnings. Why? Why does the Bible warn us against boasting like this so that we're more confident to face life? Why? It's because whatever we rely on, whatever we boast in, inevitably, that thing becomes the main thing in my life. Inevitably, this thing becomes the main thing that makes me feel secure and safe and strong. And without that thing, I feel insecure. I feel unsafe. I feel weak without this thing. In other words, what you're doing is you're no longer looking to God. You're looking at this thing. And you're slipping into idolatry. And the question is, how do you face the greatest battle of this life? Because that will define your answer for everything else in life. How do you face the greatest battle of sin, judgment, and death? How do you face that battle? Well, when you feel terrible, when you mess up, when you think about your death, what do you do? How do you, how do you face all that? Many people say something like this. You know, they say, you know, oh yeah, I did something bad, I messed up, I'm imperfect just like any other human. But you know, I'm fundamentally a good person. I serve in church, I donate to charity, I'm kind to people, you know, I messed up sometimes, but fundamentally I'm really a good person. That's what many, many people try to say to themselves. You know what they're doing, 
They're doing exactly what Paul says in verse 2. They're boasting about their works. But see, the problem there is that if you boast and rely on your goodness, on your own works, then inevitably that becomes the main thing in your life. And if that becomes the main thing in your life, then you have to protect that thing. You have to uphold that perception of your own goodness. And you know what that does to you? You've seen a lot of people uh, grow into this. When that thing, when that goodness becomes the main thing, then inevitably, sooner or later, you start to uh, have to become willfully blind to how bad you really are. You have to be defensive when people criticize you. you. You have to live in denial of some blind spots in your life. Why? Because if this thing, if your good works, if your goodness crumbles, then you also crumble. You have nothing else to stand on to face this life. And see, over time, if you keep up with that, that makes you into a self-righteous Pharisee. And at its worst, you start to compare yourself with other people. You start to look down on people. You start to look at them to get some sense of superiority and you condemn others so that you feel better about yourself, so that you feel safer and stronger to face this life. But Paul says, even if, even if you were as righteous as Abraham himself, you have nothing to boast about before God. Because your good works doesn't justify you one bit. It doesn't justify you one inch, one fraction, nothing. You're justified by faith alone, by His grace. And see, if you understand that, and if that becomes a part of who you are, and that's how you face the greatest battles of your life, of sin, death, and judgment, if you rely on God's grace alone, and by your faith you trust in His promise, if that's your main thing, then what happens? How do you face this life? How do you muster up courage? How do you feel safe and strong? You don't have to compare yourself with other people because it's not about you anymore. It's not about how better you are than other people. No, it's not about me. It's about Him and His grace and His promise and His, and His goodness and kindness towards you. So when you're faced with the battles of this life, what do you say? You say to yourself, not look at me. You say, look at Him. Look at His grace. Look at His promise. Look at His goodness and His kindness and His love. That's why I'm safe and strong and I can overcome this by Him. So you're no longer boasting in anything about you. You're boasting in Him alone. See, if, if you really internalize the fact that you're justified by faith and grace alone, if that becomes the main thing in your life, then now you can freely admit to any flaw or sin that you find in yourself. You can freely admit that. Because if your goodness crumbles, so what? It's not about that anymore. You're justified by grace. So you don't have to live in self-denial anymore about your, your own sins. You can be open to criticisms. You don't have to be so defensive anymore. And see, if that happens slowly over time, that melts any kind of spiritual pride in me. 
and it makes me humble and gentle and lowly in spirit. But we're not insecure, we're not scared cats, we're not easily intimidated. Why? Because we know that we're justified already. God has already credited a billion righteousness into our account. And therefore, I know I'm safe. I know I'm headed home. There's no more condemnation, no more shame, no more guilt, no more dread in me. I'm safe. I'm strong. I'm going to overcome because of God's grace. See, that changes the way you do life. That changes how you face life, how you feel safe and strong enough to engage into the battles of this life, even the greatest battles. You go out there by faith alone, apart from your good works. That's what happens when we finally understand and it sinks all the way in that we're justified by faith alone, by God's grace alone. Well, then how? How then can that happen for us? How can we have that kind of faith and, and, and boast in God alone? Well, Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God. Now, what kind of faith did Abraham have? Well, on the one hand, it says Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was also dead, right? So Abraham faced the facts. On the one hand, faith is about thinking. See, faith is not about being blind. It's not about being dumb. Faith doesn't close its eyes or close its mind. No, no, no. Faith is thinking. Faith sees reality with, an, with open eyes. Faith listens to reason with an open mind. It's about being utterly realistic. It's about being utterly reasonable, right? So faith is about thinking. See, in, in Romans 11, uh, Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, uh, it says there that by faith, Abraham surrendered up Isaac, right? And the way that Abraham got that faith is, it says there, Abraham reasoned that God could raise back the dead. So there's reason, there's logic, there's thinking involved in faith. It's never less than that. You have to think. You have to, you have to really dig down deep and understand and be utterly aware and face the facts of life. So faith is never less than thinking. But on the other hand, faith also goes beyond thinking and ultimately ends up in trusting. It says there, Abraham became fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. In other words, after Abraham had done his thinking and he's reached the end, at the very end, he has to come to a decision and say, okay, I'll trust that God can make a way when I, when I cannot think of any way. See, that's what faith is it's about thinking that ultimately ends in trusting the great missionary john Patton, he was at one time trying to translate the bible into the local language of the people he was reaching out to and he was having a difficult time trying to translate the word behind faith when suddenly someone came in interrupted him who was in urgent need of help and this person said please sir May I come in and 
lean heavily upon you. That's what faith is. It's to lean upon God, lean heavily upon God. See, faith says, okay, Lord, I've done my thinking. I've thought about it. And I cannot think of any way to save myself. I cannot. I'm, I, I've exhausted all my options. So, Lord, I'm going to trust you and what you promise to save me. Okay, Lord, I, I've done all my thinking. I've reasoned about it. I've used all my logic and I've looked at all the evidences, all the facts, and I've come to a conclusion that only you can be trusted to get me through this life and beyond this life. I choose to trust you. I'm going to lean heavily upon you and put my whole weight upon you and your promise for me. That's what faith is. And that's what Abraham had. His faith believed in God and in his promise. He put his whole weight on that. And that's what we need. Well, what promise are we going to lean on? What, is, what promise do we have? Well, Paul says at the end of chapter 4 that for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the promise of the gospel. The promise that Jesus has paid the billion sins that we owe God. The promise that if we just put our faith in Him, God's going to credit a billion righteousness. The billion righteousness of Christ is credited to us. That's the promise. And in that promise of grace, that's where I can put my entire weight. That's where you can lean heavily on for your salvation, for your future, for your destiny, for the way you face this life. Lean completely on that. That's what faith means. Now you may think, okay, but I'm, I'm struggling to do that. I'm not like Abraham. I'm not that, this great hero of faith. Well, listen, Abraham, you actually have more reason to have faith than Abraham did. See, Abraham, Abraham had to believe when his body was as good as dead. But now we're called to believe when Jesus has been raised from the dead. Abraham had to believe when there was no sign of any fulfillment. He had to wait. But we're now called to believe when the promise has been secured and the blessings are given. Christ has been raised to life for our justification. And therefore, believe. Lean completely on God's promise of grace that He will save, that He will bless, that He will justify us. Lean on to that. Believe on that. Don't, don't leave another foot on your works. No, no, no. Put two feet in to promise of grace. Believe in His promise. And once you understand this, and you put your whole trust in God's promise, 
then and only then can you finally face the battles of this life from the smallest to the greatest. You can face that by His grace, boasting in God and God alone. There you can finally find the safety and the strength and the courage you need to overcome this life. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, Lord, even now, we completely underestimate the grace that you give us. We think of it too small. We think of ourselves too big. But Lord, help us see that you owe us nothing and everything in this life is a gift of grace. And you even give us the gift of salvation through the promise that is in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace that you would credit our faith into righteousness of Christ. Lord, we thank you. We're grateful and we're, we have no words to repay you or to, or to express our gratitude, but Lord, we fall down now in utter worship giving you thanks, giving you praise, expressing our love for you, Lord, because you loved us so. Thank you, Lord. Help us have that clarity in our minds about this gospel. Help it become real and internalized in our hearts that we may boast in you and you alone and come to trust you with our whole beings so that we may glorify you with all our days. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who secured our justification. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining our online worship. I pray that we continue to gain more clarity about the gospel and find the strength we need for the coming days. God bless you.